I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. Today, we continue with our check on the state of American democracy. We began with Harvard professors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt to get an update on how democracies die and the question, how much more can our institutions take? Today, we'll look at the cornerstone of our democracy and a question that's as shocking to ask as it sounds. Can America run a fair election? I told you, crazy. But whether that's Putin's greatest accomplishment, the post-Iowa caucus fiasco reality, or simply the result of the disintegration of nearly all of society's institutions over the last years, well, that's where we're at. Look at the evidence, the latest headlines that U.S. intelligence briefed Congress that Russia already is attacking our elections again, trying to help Trump win in 2020 and trying to help Democratic frontrunner Bernie Sanders, too. Voter suppression in Kansas, Georgia, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, and elsewhere. Unproven claims of voter fraud to hurt our confidence in elections. Regular threats, or so-called jokes, to not leave office, from Trump to recently ousted Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin. Massive targeted disinformation campaigns, even from within the U.S., and, of course, election regularities in Broward County, Florida, election debacles like the recent Iowa caucus, and even New York Times reporting from the Nevada caucus of, quote, errors and inconsistencies similar to Iowa. While concerns around the viability and fairness of U.S. elections have been raised in the past, anyone listening to this podcast ever seen a hanging chad? It's fair to say the distrust and concern have never been as great as they are today. It all adds up to one of the major threats to American democracy and that question I asked at the top that few of us ever expected to seriously hear. So where are we? How bad is the problem? And perhaps most importantly, how does American democracy survive if Americans don't trust their elections? Rick Hassan is the one to ask. Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine, and author of the new book, Election Meltdown. Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Hassan writes the often-quoted Election Law Blog, which, like his excellent Twitter feed, is an absolute must-read. Rick is co-author of Leading Casebooks in Election Law and Remedies, as well as the author of over a 100 articles on election law issues, published in numerous journals including the Harvard Law Review, Stanford Law Review, and Supreme Court Review. And, as you might expect, he also just released a new podcast with Slate, appropriately named Election Meltdown Podcast, which I invite you to listen to after you listen to mine. I'm kidding, of course. Mostly. Definitely listen to mine. Anyhow, before my conversation with Rick, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks. Thank you. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Rick Hassan. Rick, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Great to be with you again. Now, I'm not the one in the advisory business, Rick, but in book publishing, I just think I ought to take a moment and explain timing is everything. I mean, if you write a book about the dangers of distrust in American elections, it helps if there are news events like, you know, live and, and recent. Without that, it's going to be really hard for people to take your argument seriously. I mean, you're, you're aware of that, right? Well, the good news is uh, Iowa, the Iowa Democratic Party cooperated <laughs> in the uh, caucus system and really got on everyone's radar the issue I've been writing about for years and focus on in the new book, Election Meltdown, which is 
Americans increasing distrust in the fairness and accuracy in the way we count votes. Yes, so much that has happened in Iowa. And and before we get into the guts of your book, let's talk about that just a little bit more. I, I know we're, we're not joking, but joking a little bit. And um, I'm sure you'll be among the first to agree. It's kind of no nothing to laugh about. Was Iowa a nuclear bomb in Americans' electoral system confidence? Or is it the canary in the coal mine warning that there's more danger ahead? I, I found myself in, in, you know, the Iowa events occurred in the middle while I was reading your book. And I feel like, boy, I've heard this before, right in, you know, Hassan's book. And now I'm seeing it in, in real time. So was it more of a nuclear bomb in your estimation or just another canary in the coal mine that you've been trying to shine a light into? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that the Iowa caucus is atypical in that it's run by a political party rather than being run by a government agency the way we do most elections. Yeah. And there's a history of mess ups in the caucus process in Iowa and in other states. If you're only something once every four years and as happened in Iowa this time, you're going to use new technology and a new set of voting rules. Well, you know, that's kind of asking for trouble. And so I think in some ways we shouldn't panic about Iowa because it is atypical, but it's useful in getting the public's attention focused on the fact that although election officials do a pretty good job, especially given budget constraints, there are these weak links, there are these places where there are problems, and we can't ignore them, and we have to do what we can to minimize the dangers, like making sure that there's more testing before they start using a new system. There was even reporting in the New York Times that Kind of everything that could go wrong, everything I describe in the book <laughs> happens in Iowa. So maybe that's good because it's relatively low stakes. It certainly put Democrats with egg on their face, but it, it, it wasn't the presidential election. So I don't want to jump to the end of the conversation, but I feel like the Iowa reality demands it just a little bit. What happens if Americans lose confidence? And I think it's part of the reason why you write the book. What happens if Americans lose confidence in our electoral system? Is it too extreme of a question to ask, how does a democracy survive if the voting process isn't trusted? No, I think that's the right question to ask, because that was the motivation for the book. There was this moment in the 2016 election, right after one of the debates between Trump and Clinton, where there were questions about whether Trump would accept the election results if he lost. And he gives this speech uh, at one of his rallies, uh, and he says, uh, yeah, I'll totally accept the results of the historic great presidential election. And then he pauses, looks at the camera, points and smiles and says, if I win. And mm -hmm. I found this to be a really troubling episode because how does democracy work? It works that we hold a free and fair election. The losers are not happy, but they accept the results and say, we'll fight another day. And that's really not something Americans really thought about. I went back, I saw a blog post I wrote when Barack Obama was inaugurated in January 2009, remarking on how we had this peaceful transition of power. The yeah. losers accepted the results. We went from a Conservative Republicans who were liberal Democrat, there was a lot of pomp and circumstance and celebration. And, you know, that was, you know, just totally acceptable. And in the last decade or so, things have deteriorated where people come up to me and they say, you know, I'm worried about the upcoming election. Uh, I'm worried about, uh, you know, what if Trump won't leave if he loses? Or, uh, you know, some Republicans worry that Democrats are going to treat Trump as uh, as an illegitimate president uh, and something they already do treat him that way. So 
we're in a precarious position because democracy depends on this kind of trust. And when yeah. you lose that trust, it's hard to build it back up. Were you writing election law blog back in 2000 uh, during Bush v. Gore? Were you writing it back then? No, I, I started in 2003 during the California recall election, you know, the election that brought us Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. Uh, uh, but uh, we had a we had an election listserv with about a thousand people on it. We were exchanging messages, but that was a little bit of a different time. I remember taking 20 minutes to download the Supreme Court opinion from the Washington Post website. So, uh, <laughs> but, but could you even imagine? The technology was a little bit different. Yeah, technology was a little bit different then. Could, could you even imagine a Bush v. Gore now? And what, what that would well, do? So, what, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so there are two things that are worse. I mean, Bush v. Gore was contentious enough. Probably the first time I got death threats um, for my commentary. Mm. But now we're more partisan than we were during Bush versus Gore, yeah. you know, if you look at yep. polling. And we have this social media environment where things can spread virally, not just anger, but misinformation. And that's a real concern of mine people deliberately spreading misinformation. And we saw misinformation being spread in Iowa, where you had Trump's campaign manager and children suggesting that it was rigged, that it was stolen when there was no evidence of that at all. Yeah. It, was, it was the common story of incompetence and not deliberate bad acting. And yet for political advantage, people calling these things out as stolen or rigged is, is very troubling. And I also saw reports, and I don't no, I don't think that any of this has gotten tied back to any specific campaign, but that there were calls on various networks or web networks, chat rooms and that sort of thing to call in to the Iowa Democratic state offices to block the lines, you know, clog the lines or something like that. I'm sure you I'm sure you saw that. Right. I, I don't know if that's been tied yes. back to anything, you know, any official party or organization, but there was that as well, I believe. Yeah, no, I do think that it is a troubling situation when people take advantage of a problem and then try to use that to their political advantage. No I, doubt. I certainly think we saw that in 2016 when, for example, the Russians tried to convince African-American voters that Hillary Clinton didn't care for them and they should stay home. And we're seeing it. Uh, we saw it in 2018 and we'll see it again. And we're already seeing it in 2020. Rick, what defines a fair election? Well, that's a very difficult question. I would say it's not an on-off switch, right? So, you know, there are fair and less fair elections. There's all kinds of issues of fairness we could debate that are more philosophical. For example, is the electoral college fair? Right. Um, which which isn't I'm even what you're writing before. about. That's not even exactly not right. So, no. And so, yeah, when, when, when people are polled and they're asked, do you think the election system is fair? Some people are answering, well, you know, there's gerrymandering, so it's not fair. Hmm. Uh, you know, or I want campaign finance reform. But I'm talking about something more fundamental, which is do people have the ability to register and vote and cast a vote that's going to be fairly and accurately counted? That's what we're talking about. Unfortunately, in this country, we have 9,000 electoral jurisdictions, not just one. And so things may be fair in one place and not fair in another. And I want to get into your four reasons for an imperiled election system, as you call it. But on some level, what's different now? And here's what I mean by that. I grew up in Chicago, which was both the city of broad shoulders and a place where you were encouraged to vote early and vote often. I recall from Robert Caro's LBJ books, um, Johnson's efforts to add votes to his early house races. Voting has always had issues. What's different or more urgent now? Well, LBJ is famous getting the uh, the people in Alice, Texas to vote for him yes. in alphabetical order in the same handwriting. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's notorious, right? But it's yes. 1948. 
And although people joke still about uh, the dead voting in Chicago, I think there's actually very little voter fraud in the United States since about the early to mid-1960s. We do have instances where it happens. It's rare. It's not the kind of fraud that you hear Republicans talking about when they want to pass a voter ID law, but it's, it's pretty rare. Our elections have been pretty clean for the last 50 years, cleaner than they've probably been in American history. And yet the concern about the fairness of elections uh, right now is very high because people, I think, misperceive whether elections can be stolen and how uh, easy or difficult that might be. There is what you call the fraudulent fraud squad. Yes. So one of the four reasons I think Americans distrust in elections is increasing is that there are a group of Republican operatives who have been pushing laws that make it harder to register and vote in the name of preventing voter fraud. But the voter fraud that they're claiming happens extremely rarely. Mm. And that's why I call them the fraudulent fraud squad. These are people like Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State of Kansas. And I tell the story in the book of how there's actually a trial. Finally, his claims of non-citizen voting being a rampant problem were put to the test in a federal court under the rules of evidence. Not only did Kobach lose, he was sanctioned by the court, including one sanction where he was required to go back to school and learn more about how to put on a trial, which was kind of embarrassing for him. But he had claimed that the amount of non-citizen voting he had found was the, quote, tip of the iceberg. Mm. And the judge said, in the end, in her opinion, there is no iceberg. There's just an icicle made up mostly of administrative error. And so... What the voter fraud voter suppression debate does is it convinces Republicans falsely that Democrats are trying to steal the election through fraud and convinces Democrats, I think correctly, that Republicans are passing laws to try to make it harder for those likely to vote for Democrats to register and vote um, in the name of preventing fraud, but actually because it has to give some political advantage. And so it is kind of a double whammy where both sides are less trustful because of this debate between the parties. And your telling of the Kansas uh, lawsuit, I think the detail that was jumped out at, to me was that was not only what you described, but also that uh, when Kobach had to pay for the online course, the retraining, he was able to use the Kansas state credit card to pay for not only that, but also the thousand bucks that uh, he was supposed to pay or had to pay the ACLU lawyers for their time or, or some such thing. But yeah, he, he had to take the course, but he got the state of Kansas to pay for it. Yeah, and I should point out the other thing he did was uh, misrepresented what was in a document that the ACLU was demanding, and uh, that's why he had to pay that other fine. So, you know, not really the shining through evidence of voter fraud that Kobach had claimed uh, was existing out there. Run through, if you would, what are some of the other tactics? So we're, we're in the voter suppression section of your book right now. There are four reasons for an imperiled election system. Uh, according to you, we're going to go quickly through all four of them. One of them is voter suppression, which we're talking about. What are some of the other tactics that we've seen? I mean, there's North Carolina, there's Indiana, there was Georgia. Can you just kind of run through? Is there a, a rogues gallery of voter suppression tactics? Well, so, uh, you know, a lot of the tactics like passing voter ID laws may not really suppress a lot of turnout because there's a lot of countermeasures that are taken when a voter ID law is put in place. And also because people who lack ID may be the ones least likely to vote. But some of the other tactics do seem to have more of an effect. And this Kansas case, the one that I described earlier involving Chris Kobach, 
involved a law that I think is one of the most pernicious, a show me your papers law, said if you want to register to vote, you have to provide documentary proof of citizenship, yeah. like a naturalization certificate or a birth certificate before you're allowed to register. And we know that 30,000 people had their voter registrations put on a suspense list. They were not allowed to vote. And it was only because of the court case that those people were enfranchised. So that's a much more significant number. But I think that even with the very difficult question of, you know, how much do voter ID laws affect the outcome of elections, what we can say is if we put the focus on the individual, the question is, why does the state get to make it harder for an otherwise eligible voter to register and vote when the claimed reasons to prevent voter fraud or promote public confidence turn out to actually not be true? What's your answer to that? The state should be put to a higher level of proof that they should not be able to pass laws that make it harder to register and vote unless they could come up with a good reason. Sometimes there are good reasons. For example, we have to have some system of verifying identity. We have to have some way of keeping track of who the voters are in the state, but not these onerous rules that seem to just be additional hurdles put before voters in a way that is going to make it easier for some people and harder for others to be able to vote. Now, you said this in the conversation, and you make this point in the book as well, and I just thought, you know, I wanted to really put a point on it. You describe voter suppression as having, I'm quoting now from the book, escalated as a Republican tool aimed to dress turnout of likely Democratic voters fueling suspicion. Now, some folks will say, you just proved your partisanship, Hassan, calling voter suppression a Republican tool. Isn't this a both sides problem? Well, when I wrote my 2012 book, The Voting Wars, I kind of saw it as a both sides problem and saw much of it as rhetoric. But now, you know, the evidence is in and there's no point in calling two things that are different the same for the, for, for the purpose of trying to sound like you're being neutral. I think in all fairness, these are the facts. These laws are passed almost always by Republican legislatures and Republican election officials and opposed by Democrats. Every time there's been an attempt to try to prove that there's a lot of voter fraud, those attempts have failed. And when the courts have upheld these laws, they've said, we're upholding them not because you've proven voter fraud, but because there's still the potential for such fraud. And there have been enough statements made, caught on tape, caught on the record, about these laws being ways to help Republicans get elected and stay in office that I think it's really fair to characterize them as voter suppression. It's not a term that I used in my 2012 book. I avoided mm. it because I thought I'm just labeling it. But now I think the jury's back in. There's no more point in beating around the bush. We should say what's actually going on. Okay, let's move to the second uh, point that you make, the four ways. The pockets of incompetency in election administration, and often in cities controlled or locations controlled by Democrats, um, in your view, have created an opening to claims of unfairness. We know Iowa, uh, the situation, we talked about that. We know a lot of us about uh, Brenda Snipes in Broward County, Florida, and you write a great deal about that in the book. What about the actual equipment? You worry as well about, say, an electrical grid attack in Detroit or Baltimore or massively long lines in Atlanta. How does incompetency factor into this electoral concern that you've got? Well, the news media loves focusing on the snafu, right? That's exactly what happened in Iowa. And we're going to have a lot of election officials using new machines, new rules in the 2020 elections in some places for the first time. So I'm worried about, for example, Pennsylvania, where they've switched from it's hard to vote by absentee to everyone can vote by absentee. There's going to be days-long delays. We know there's a history of problems of administration in, in parts of Pennsylvania. It could be the Trumps ahead on election night. And as the totals come in in the days, past, at days after that, 
he loses his lead to the Democrat. You know, you can imagine a situation where there's lots of claims of fraud and manipulation when, in fact, all it is is election officials trying to catch up with the backlog. And that's why I think it's very important for election officials to be transparent and explain what's going on, because even if they're trying to be competent, but they're slow, people are going to have suspicions in this hyperpolarized era. But there are going to be some places where it's not just going to be slow, there's going to be a mess up. And we just have to hope that it's not in a place where it's really going to matter to the outcome, because that is where the election lawyers go, that is where the media goes. And I think that really undermines confidence when you see, for example, to use another example from the book, in Detroit in 2016, Green Party candidate Jill Stein called for a recount of the presidential vote, and the poll worker incompetence was so great in Detroit that they actually could not recount the votes. And that is just a basic failure. You asked me earlier, you know, what is a fair election? Well, one hallmark of a fair election is that you can recount the votes and get substantially the same results. Mm. And they couldn't do that because of incompetence. And And there was an investigation, I should say, by the Republican Secretary of State who found incompetence, not any kind of attempt to steal the election, but, you know, still such a huge problem. Which, as you note, is what was found in uh, Broward County, Florida, and Brenda Snipes as well. No criminal, no evidence of criminal wrongdoing, but there had been some history there, in fact, of incompetence. And part of your point is Democrats should have dealt with Broward County long before so as to erase any uh, suspicion or questions. Let's move, if we can, to dirty tricks, old-fashioned and newfangled, including foreign and domestic misinformation campaigns. To start it out, what worries you more, outright manipulation like the Russia attacks or the coordinated disinformation machine reality? I I assume that you read the recent uh, McKay Coppins super scary piece in The Atlantic, and it you know, but it probably had nothing that you didn't already know, but it had a ton that the rest of us may not have been aware of. Which are you more worried about? And is there a difference between outright manipulation and coordinated disinformation? Well, I'm worried about all of it. And it's, you know, it's really hard to say to separate them out because, you know, there are all kinds of ways that things can go wrong. If you think about to what the Russians did in 2016, they did three different things, which sometimes we lump them all together. One was the spread of misinformation and vitriol, you know, just riling people up uh, on social media. That's the one that gets the most attention. Then, of course, there's the leaking of the emails, you know, the Hillary Clinton, uh, all of that stuff, which got huge play in the election. And the third thing that, that the Russians did, and this gets the least attention, Maybe it's the most troubling. There was the attempted break-ins into voter registration databases across the United States, uh, in every state. And it doesn't look like any information was changed. There's maybe one or two states where something was tried. It looked more like sniffing around. But that alone undermines people's confidence because they think that the voting rolls are being tampered with. And, you know, I don't know what 2020 is going to bring. One of my great fears is an attack on the electrical grid in a democratic city in a swing state. You know, what if the lights go out in Detroit or Milwaukee? People can't get to the polling place because, you know, the the signal lights are out and they can't operate the polling places. We don't have a good plan B for that. I don't know. I don't have a ranking of dirty tricks, but I'm worried about a kind of a whole variety of things that can happen. And also, they don't have to be foreign domestic, foreign dirty tricks. They can be domestic dirty tricks as well. There's lots of things the Russians did, for example, that Democrats tried to emulate in the 2017 U.S. Senate race race, between Doug Jones and and, and Roy Moore and, you know, pretending to be conservative Christians uh, opposed to Moore to try to depress 
the Republican moderate vote in the state of Alabama. So, yeah, and back to your point about am I just accusing Republicans of suppression, you know, on incompetence and on dirty tricks, we've got stuff on both sides of the aisle, no question. One of your quotes, on page 79, you quote the head of one of the groups involved in that Alabama scheme, who said, and, and this struck me, who, who said, so they, they kind of disavowed it after they had done it and after they had tried it and got called out. Yes. At, at that point, they, they disavowed it and said, oh, you know, they said a number of things, including, well, gosh, we never should have done it in the first place. And I was thinking about it, and this quote kind of stood out to me. One of the folks said, none of the portfolio we recommended should have engaged in group disparagement or scale misinformation. Such tactics may win a battle but lose the war by giving up on the American ideal that we seek. Now, I read that quote after I had read the McKay-Coppins piece on the rampant disinformation that seems to be underway. And as I thought about that last part of the quote, such tactics may win a battle but lose the war by giving up on the American ideal that we seek. I started to wonder, and I don't mean to lose my optimism, but is that true? Or at this point, in some way, is it the opposite, that if everyone doesn't get into the misinformation game because there's so much out there, then only the ones who do it will win? Am I just being too uh, – am I getting off my optimism train too early? Well, no. Well, so, you know, the question is, do you fight fire with fire? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, how do you deal with this kind of problem? And, and I think that Democrats need to resist fighting fire with fire because it will, the biggest effect of misinformation that we've seen so far, like on the 2016 elections, in the 2016 elections, is that people's overall trust is going down in what they read online and, you know, their belief in actual journalism. And so I think one of the dangers is if both sides start doing it, then we'll have further lost faith and we'll really be losing another kind of supposition of a democracy, which is that the public is alert enough and informed enough to be able to make voting decisions consistent with each voter's interests. And so I think kind of a piling on of this is problematic and there needs to be some norms put in place to make sure, even if it's asymmetrical at this point, to preserve the space for information intermediaries to be able to be out there to give us fair and accurate information. Which we don't, we don't have right Which we now. don't have. So, so let me let me push you just a little bit on that. I want to believe what you're saying. I, I've I've read, like I know you have as well, how democracies die. I'm pretty aware of some of the concerns and the the way that it, things can devolve. And at the same time, I can hear, you know, some of the more aggressive voices, you know, that would be listening to this and shouting, Rick, man, if we don't fight fire with fire, it's the equivalent of we're bringing a plastic knife to an AK-47 gunfight. And it's really nice what you're saying. But given where we're at, this isn't the time for this isn't the time for good behavior. We've got to fight fire with fire is what I would imagine people would say back to you. Right. So in addition to my response in terms of the long-term loss of legitimacy of, you know, kind of the information environment, which I'm very concerned about, short-term, I think it would backfire on Democrats because Trump will then be able to say it's fake news. We're all, and then others will be able to say, you know, Democrats, Republicans, everybody does it. And I don't think it would end up securing any electoral advantage anyway. So even if you didn't care about the integrity of the system, as I do, and you just cared about winning and beating Donald Trump, 
then uh, it's not clear to me that this is the strategy or tactic that is going to win it for you. Short-term, ineffective, long-term, the wrong thing to do. Uh, Hessen comes down yep. against on, on both fronts. Let's, yep. let's go through the, the fourth reason, because then I want to get quickly to um, some of the solutions that you propose. Well, the solutions will be quick, because none of them are going to work. Yeah, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> Wait a minute. You just stole one of my questions to you. <laughs> All right. I'm worried about that. I like your ideas on the solutions, but you know, I think that is the key the key question. We'll, we'll get, so let's get to that in, in one moment. Number four was inflammatory rhetoric about stolen elections and the way that supercharges distrust among hardcore partisans. You noted the other day in a tweet that there have been at least 29 times that Trump has joked, and you put joked in quotes, or remarked about staying in office beyond his constitutional term limit. Um, Bill Maher, of course, is famously asking every Democratic candidate what they'll do when Trump doesn't accept the 2020 results and refuses to leave. Why don't we have why, why does all of this matter? I mean, don't, don't we have the institutional means to handle the peaceful transfer of power? Well, yeah, yes, assuming that what you have is one rogue person in the White House who won't leave. But if you look at the behavior of Republicans during the impeachment, they were willing to go along with Trump's lies. They were willing to back him up. And so just spinning out one of the nightmare scenarios I mentioned earlier, Trump's ahead in the counting in Pennsylvania on election night, and eventually as the absentee ballots are counted, he loses his lead. What if Trump claims victory? What if Trump convinces the Republican legislature to send a competing slate of electors to the Electoral College, something we don't really think enough about? And then it goes to Congress and the House of Representatives. They have two slates of electors from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is decisive. And the voting in the House of Representatives is done on the basis of each state gets one vote, not each representative, more Republican states than Democratic states. Mm. So that's a scenario where Trump loses, claims victory, and the Republican Congress backs him. It's not impossible. I'm not saying it's likely, but it's not impossible. So it depends on how other actors in the process work when you know the claim is the election was stolen, I won. So we'll just have to see who has backbone and who is willing to stand up. And I, based on the impeachment process, I'm I'm very skeptical that if it came down to it, that Republicans would not bow their will to what Trump would want. Voter suppression, pockets of incompetency, dirty tricks, claims of stolen elections. Those are basically the four worries that you have. Help us out, Professor. What are the solutions? Well, you know, we can talk long-term solutions in 10, 20 years, maybe when things are a little less hot, maybe like moving to nationalized nonpartisan election administration with uniform rules, uniform machines and all of that. We could talk about improved civics education so people understand what the value of a fair election system is and, and about accepting the loss and moving on. But I'm concerned about triage. What can we do in the next nine months? And here kind of the Tools that we might think of to resolve election disputes, we'd be concerned. In 2000, we had a disputed election. It ended when the United States Supreme Court sided with one candidate and the other candidate conceded. Would such a thing happen today? Would Democrats accept a Supreme Court decision that sided with Trump if all the Republican appointed justices sided with Trump and all the Democratic justices sided with his opponent? Are there people we could trot out who everyone would accept as fair arbiters? You know, Colin Powell was somebody who was suggested in 2016 that Obama might rely on if Trump wouldn't concede. 
hard to know who those people are that would be accepted by the vast majority of the American people today. Are there going to be protests in the streets? Would they turn violent? I mean, that's not how we want to resolve our elections. So really the best chance of avoiding a meltdown, I hate to say it, in 2020 is there not being a close election. Because if it's such a blowout one way or the other, then it's really hard to make the claim that I really won when I lost or for the losers to really believe that they won. But that's not something we can really count on. No. And it's a bit of a scary set of potential outcomes. And the fact that the solution requires one side to win by a significant margin, that also seems to go against how elections are meant to get decided. We've all were taught once upon a time, it's uh, 50% plus one, the argument that you make that it's going to take 50% plus a lot to gain that confidence. That's a scary thing. I want to close, Rick, with whether you answered a question yourself that you raise. You write that Trump's actions, this is at the beginning, near the beginning of your book, you write that Trump's actions, quote, have opened a national conversation about whether it's norms rather than law that hold American democracy together. I just thought that was an excellent statement and the key question, and it left me wondering, um, so which, in your mind, is it? Well, it's a combination, it's, and it's a patchwork of state, federal, local laws and norms. And we've seen in the Trump presidency lots of norms deteriorate and lots of cases in which there are problematic attacks on the press, on the FBI, on the opponents, on judges. Right? We've seen Trump kind of break a lot of norms, and so it wouldn't be surprising to see him break norms in relation to the election. In fact, I think he already has, as you mentioned. He's now at least 29 times joked about staying in office beyond his constitutional term limit. And I can't think of another instance of a president doing anything remotely like that. And so I really think so much of our system depends upon trust and political actors willing to abide by unwritten rules about how things are done. You could think back again to either Richard Nixon in 1960 or Al Gore in 2000 conceding the election, even though they had valid grounds potentially for contesting it, Mm. You, you know, for the good of the country. It's hard to imagine anyone doing that now. And it's going to be a fight, you know, a bitter fight to the, to the very end. And that's why, you know, talking about what can be done more than anything else, I think we need election administrators to be transparent about what's, what they're doing, and what's going to happen, and the media to be accurate about explaining what's going to happen, why there might be delays, what the process is going to be, because we all need to be prepared for a very close election where there's going to be a lot of suspicion on both sides about whether things are going to be done fairly. And if I might add, with just a touch of bias, three other things that people can do is uh, follow your Twitter feed, read Election Law Blog, and read Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Rick Hassan. My thanks to Rick for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon. Music.